Romans chapter 3, we'll be reading verses uh, 9 through 26. This, of course, will be the uh, inerrant part of the sermon. All the rest needs to be checked carefully uh, when you get home and examined to see if, in fact, it is true. Let us hear now from God. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongues, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I felt it was a great privilege to be able to come to preach to you on homecoming and uh, I was very pleased when Bob asked me and I immediately started thinking I need to have something that themes in with homecoming. And of course, we're having a homecoming here today. We know a little bit about homecoming, right? Isn't it, isn't it when all the members of a family gather together? No matter what organization, what you want to call a family anymore, but when the members of a family gather together and they get reunited and they <coughs> remember their past and they talk about all the joys and hopes that they have and rejoice as a family. I, uh, I come from a big family back, back actually on my mother's side back in Missouri. And we, used to, we used to gather there in Missouri every two years. Uh, my mother made my father promise her to take her back every two years to reunite with families. And I'd say my favorite reunion was the year after Missouri joined the Southeastern Conference. 
And because uh, I had two uncles that played for the University of Missouri way back when, and when they joined, I got a lot of noise from them. You know, so I went the next year, and when I and all the heads of the family get up and say something, you know, about their year and all that. I, I only had one thing to say to them when I got up. I just said, welcome to the SEC. <laughs> but it's great to be with family. It's great to be able to kid with family. It's great to have great unity in family. But actually, the homecoming that I'm looking forward to is the homecoming when I finally am reunited with God in heaven. I've got three R's, basically, uh, in the sermon, ruined by the fall, redeemed by Christ, resurrection by the Spirit. We really won't get that far. We won't get far enough in the sermon to get to the resurrection by the, by the Spirit. But another way that you could look at this is uh, the ruin by the fall is why we need to be reconciled to God and redeemed by Christ, how God did it. And then the resurrection by the Spirit is how God applies it to us. We won't be able to get to all of that. But I want to talk about ruined by the fall. And to do that, we need to go back, not to our immediate families that we have here, uh, not even to uh, the family that was created by God. That's the penultimate uh, institution on earth was the union between Adam and Eve for the production of children, your family. There's no, uh, there's no wonder that the family's under attack today because that's God's institution. But even before that, there was an, another institution. There was an institution. There was a covenant. There was a communication between God the Father and his son, Adam, whom he created from the dust of the earth. He created Adam, and he established a covenant with him, and he gave him a very great estate. He gave him the whole world. And he gave him a good estate. Everything would cooperate with him. There was no death, there was no sorrow, there was no dying. And in this covenant, he gave it to Adam, and he put him in this thing, and he put him there for a test. Basically, for Adam to go out and to do service to God by filling the earth and subduing the earth. But then he also had another requirement, and that is, you shall not re rebel against me. There's a law. You can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is treason against God. And for man to do it, the penalty was death. Adam broke the covenant. Adam took what was God's, what was prohibited to him by God. And he did it at the inst instigation of Satan. Adam, uh, Adam was actually not the first fallen creature in the universe. Satan was, with a whole host of demonic angels. Satan came and he tempted Adam. First he tempted his wife, Eve. And she was deceived. And she took of the fruit and she ate. 
I would think that's the way Adam would fell into, uh, into sin and to rebellion against God, but I actually don't think so because Paul said Adam was not deceived. Speculation, since the Bible doesn't tell us exactly why Adam followed his wife into sin. But I do know that his temptation was great because the wife that God had made for Adam beautiful and good and Adam had been educated by God even before Eve was made and Adam was able to examine all the other creatures on the earth and all that he would have dominion over and he noticed one thing God let him learn one thing right there none of these things are, are complimentary to me there's none of these things that I can communicate with there's no one to help me here. So God made Eve, and he was very good, and Adam was very delighted. So when Eve fell, I actually think, you don't have to believe this, this is not a dogma of the church, this is one preacher's opinion. I believe that Adam was stunned by it. And I believe that when he lost Eve, which he most surely thought he had lost Eve because he was not deceived. Uh, Satan said, you're not going to die. I don't think Adam was deceived by that. I think he knew that Eve was going to die. But I think that uh, his love for Eve and for what he had, what God had given to him, was more than he could bear. So he turned against the giver of the gift and sinned against God and therefore sided with Satan. So man was fallen and man was dead. Everything that man had from that point on was spoiled. As a matter of fact, Adam was exiled from his home. And you know what a man's home is ultimately? Paul had to tell the, the pagan Greeks before he could actually preach the gospel to them. So just in case there's nobody here that doesn't know the real home of man. God told those pagan Greeks, you are the offspring of God. Referring back to Adam and we're the descendants of Adam. And then he said to them, in him we live and move and have our being. God's our home in everything. I'm going to be preaching about the three R's, but you know, everybody needs to know the three C's about God's relationship to his creation. And that is, is that God conceives all things. He has the blueprint to all things. He creates all things. Everything that he conceives of, that he wants things to be a certain way, he creates that which is necessary to do it. And then he controls all things. That's our relationship to God. So when Adam was cast out of the garden, since life is from, through, and to God, Adam was dead. He was spiritually dead, and his body was dying. 
But I think sometimes uh, we don't make too much out of physical death. It is a fearsome thing for us to die physically. But not quite as, not quite as fearsome for Christians as others. Because though it won't be the ultimate reunion, Paul said, when we're absent from the body, we're at home with the Lord. So we get a reunion. There's a lot of people that have already had sort of reunion before the great reunion at the end of the world when the, when the bodies of all of the saints are raised, reuniting their bodies, and we have that big feast, and we praise God and remember everything. And we get to know some of those members that we didn't know before. And it'll be a joyous time. But there's a long ways to go for Adam man as a whole to that journey back to the heavenly place. So Paul reminds the writers, I mean the readers of his letter about the ruin, about the effect upon them because man is, one of the things that man is very good at doing is suppressing the knowledge of God in suppressing the fact that he is, in fact, an evil creature. I can't believe that. That's such a sweet little lady over there. She can't be evil. Look at my, look at my, my boy. He's got to be a good boy. You know, I'm not that bad. But how bad is the fall? How bad is the ruin? Let's take a look at the word of God. None is righteous. No one, uh, no one. Not one understands, no one seeks God. So of all the people on the face of the earth, everywhere that you can look, Paul says there's not one righteous man. And, you know, a lot of people, uh, when, they, when they read that, a lot of Christians today, they say, well, you know, when he says that, you know, he's just talking about the body that was, was cursed and we, you know, it's, it's dying and it's bad. The Greeks kind of believe that too. Well, the body's bad, yes. So I'll be glad to get rid of this thing. But, you know, on the inside, in the spirit, we're really good. You hear that in the United States all the time, right? Deep down inside, he's a good man. He's just had some outside things that have wounded him and hurt him. And therefore, if we can get rid of those things then he can be a good man again. Matter of fact, I think that's the religion of most people, even in the church. Remove the obstacles, treat people good, and they'll be good. But Paul says that it's not just the outside, it's, just not, it's not the circumstance. He says no one understands the, the fall from God, the exile into the land of death, affected the understanding. No one understands. It affects the heart. Jesus said it's out of the heart, out of the spirit of man, out of the true man that's inside. Our bodies are supposed to be servants to our hearts. The union between the, the spirit and the body is so close, of course, that we can't, we can't separate it. But it's out of the heart. It's out of the core. And so at your core, everyone at their core is not righteous and no one understands as they are. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
This is a remarkable claim. He's saying, not only are you evil, you don't even do, you don't even do one good deed. Everything you do, everything you touch is evil. Most Americans don't believe that. How could that possibly be? I like to explain it. I explained it to my children when they were growing up that, yes, people do things that are beneficial to other human beings. Yes, people love their children. They protect their children. Yes, soldiers run into war and they lay down their life for their countrymen. They do all kinds of things. But what is the man that is alienated from God? Why is he doing that? And does he acknowledge the one from whom, through whom, and to whom are all things? So if you do a good deed and you don't think that it came from God or you don't acknowledge that it came from God, and if you don't acknowledge that you're doing it through God, by his power and by his spirit, and if you're not doing and if you're not doing it to proclaim the glory of God in this earth, guess what? It's an evil deed. I don't care if Bill Gates and Warren Buffett give all their money. They've already got most of their money in a big fund that they hope is going to benefit mankind. They're going to get us all vaccinated. They're going to get all these kind of good things. They're, going to, they're hoping to make the world one big, peaceful, happy family. And I'm sure they mean it. I'm sure they're very sincere. It's all worthless. As a matter of fact, it's worse, than, it's worse than worthless. Their good deeds actually are ultimately evil. And God says that that extends to everyone. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. If there's anything that human beings are good at since the fall, it's lying. We all say when something bad happens to somebody that we know and love, I just never knew them. That's because they're good at deceiving. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they do not know. Human beings since the fall are very warlike. You know, it's interesting. There's been very few years of peace on the face of the earth. As a matter of fact, I don't think there's been any. But even in great empires, which we look back and say they established the peace. Take the Greeks, when they conquered the whole world, they were trying to unify the world like we are now, and they thought well, if we unify the world under ourselves, that we'll have peace. Well, they went to war in order to do it. And after they did it, there was nothing but war until their empire finally collapsed. And even the Roman Empire, when they talk about the Pax Romana, the, the, the peace of the Romans, well, half the time they were in great conflict as they went out and tried to conquer everybody around them. And the rest of the time they were in civil war. And they had a few brief times when the whole populace of Rome didn't feel threatened and have to be behind a wall. They call that the Pax Romana. But the fact of the matter of the time, all the while that they were doing it, they were out on their borders killing anybody that tried to threaten them. 
very little peace, men are warlike. And then the worst thing about us, why we are so alienated by God, why we need to be restored in order to go home, is that there is no fear of God among fallen men. And I hear that all the time. People are not the least bit afraid to call the word of God a lie. Some of them are, have so much fear, of, have, no, have, have no fear of God to the point where they don't even think about it. That's a real lack of respect. That's a real lack of acknowledgement of God. That's a real lack of understanding that from him, through him, and to him are all things. They have no respect. They have no fear. They have no awe whatsoever. And so Paul concludes, if you want to know how bad it is and how hard it is to get home, he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable before God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So every human being on the face of the earth is under basically... Uh, up until the time Christ came, and we'll get to that in a minute. But every human being on the face of the earth was under one of two covenants. You had the whole earth that was always under this covenant of works that God put before Adam in the first place. And he said, the day that you eat of the tree, you will die. All right. So every human being, it doesn't matter when they're born in this earth, they're still under the covenant that says, you owe obedience to God because he is your maker, and from him, to him, and through him are all things. And so anytime you do something that's against his law, his good and holy law, like love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and your neighbors yourself, like don't kill your neighbor, like David, don't, uh, no, I'll, I'll say David for a minute, like Romans, don't go out and crucify entire populations of people because they resist you. Don't go out and bring slaves in from everywhere and put them in your arenas and let them kill each other for your, thing, for your pleasure. So, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Because from the law, knowing what's right, which all men do, Paul proved that up until this point, by knowing what's right, all that does is convict you of sin. There was a second covenant that was made pre-Christ. And actually it was a covenant that God made with Abraham. Because after Adam fell into sin, God promised something to Satan. And later on it developed where we could see that the, the promise that he made to Satan, the curse, he actually cursed Satan, but in the curse he made Satan a promise. So God cursed Satan by saying, because you deceived Eve, and that led to the fall of the earth, not because, not because Eve actually by herself caused, the fall, but caused Adam to fall. He said, because 
of what you have done. The seed of the woman is going to be brought out, out of her, and that seed of the woman is going to crush your head. Meaning that he was promising Satan that he had deceived man and he brought death on man and by a man his death was going to come, that he was going to destroy Satan and destroy all his works. That promise was made. And that promise was made to a man named Abram many centuries later. People wait for centuries. And the earth was just filled with violence all the way. Matter of fact, it was so bad pre-flood that it got down to one family that God preserved from being the followers of Satan because everybody else, he says, every thought and intention of their heart, the evil heart. So God brought judgment on the whole earth and brought them all down. And then the world started up again where all the offspring of Noah's family. But then very soon they were pagan. They had deserted God. So God brought Abraham out of that and he reiterated a promise to him and he said to him, the Messiah, the promised one, the seed of the woman that's going to come out and destroy and restore you is going to come from your flesh. Actually, it would, it would be from his line and it would be from the body, basically, of the woman. And so Sarah bore a child. And there was always great hope every time there was a child born in Israel. Will this be the one? Will this be the one to free us from all our enemies, from death, from sorrow, from misery, from want? But this never came. This never came. God gave them a law. As a matter of fact, they knew more about this, this promised Savior than the rest of the people had ever known. There was an advancement in the knowledge of what God was going to do to save us. And it was in their law. He reiterated the moral law. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and your neighbor as yourself. He reiterated that and all its components, which did nothing but condemn these people because they all went out and broke it. But then he showed them through types and symbols and things how it was that the Savior that was to come would save them. And so they had an altar where they would slay a lamb. They had a king that came, David, a man after God's own heart that went out and conquered their enemies. They had a temple which was built where they could all congregate together and worship God. But of course, none of that stuff ever actually saved any of them. None of them defeated Satan. As a matter of fact, it got so bad in Israel, the prophets started coming and they said, you know, God said, I'm going to get rid of these people. I'm going to bring punishment on these people. And the prophets said, we're all so wicked. If he hadn't left us a remnant, there'd be nothing left of us at all. So it's, it's, a, dim, it's a dim picture being alienated from God and the condition we are. So how is it that we can get home 
How can we be reunited with a God who made us and who gives us all things? How can we get back to that? And Paul says, but now, always the most blessed word in the scripture. You can't do it from the law. There's got to be another way. And it is the righteousness of God that has been manifested apart from the law. The law and the prophets bearing witness to it. So it's not going to be that you're, you're going to be able to produce your own righteousness from the law. But in fact, it's going to be the righteousness of God. The very righteousness of God. There is no man. Read Isaiah 59. God looked and he was appalled because there was no justice in Israel. Because everybody was taking advantage of the widows and the orphans. Because they were killing and murdering and stealing. Even the best of kings like David, when he got a chance to do it, from the evil of his heart came adultery and murder that brought punishment to his people. So we need a righteousness that is apart from the law, and it is the righteousness of Christ through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You can't get the righteousness you need by being a good boy or good girl, because you're not. And because of who you are, you can't produce it. But somebody could produce it, and that was God. God had to give you a righteousness of his own, of his righteousness. And he said, for the reason there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, that presents a problem. A problem for God. The only way that we can be justified is for God to declare us righteous. And because he declares us righteous when, the, when, when we obey God, then uh, the blessings of God, we're, we're reunited with him, and the blessings of God flow out upon us. So it's a problem because God is a just and righteous judge. He is a just and righteous king. And he had already told Israel, when you judge and when you rule, you are not to show partiality. If a man murders, he's to die. If a man doesn't murder, then he doesn't come under that penalty. But the, the person who sins shall die. So the fact of the matter is how can God justify sinners? Now there's probably a couple of you out there who think I've lost my mind at this point. Probably say, well, he doesn't justify sinners. What he does is he goes and he makes people righteous to start with. He sends his spirit and makes them righteous and he gives them, you know, and he, he forms it in there. And, and when they're good, they got all kind of means where you can do that. If you're Roman Catholic, you can get baptized. That'll, that'll wash it away. If you're a Pelagian, you can just go out and you say, well, I'll just be good. I can do it. As long as you're good, 
He'll declare you to be righteous as long as you don't do any, do any sins. But God says over in uh, Romans chapter 5, find it here. I'm sorry, 4. He says, And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness, just as David said, also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are the one whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man, is the man whom the Lord will not count his sin. So the fact of the matter is the Bible teaches that God justifies the ungodly of which we were and of which we are in and of ourselves. Most people don't believe that. I understand that. But that's what the Bible teaches. And that was a problem for God. I never find anything in the scripture since God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable since he has all power and his mind conceives all things. He knows how to do everything and he can do it without diminishing himself. I never saw anything in scripture where God had a problem doing anything, but he had a problem with justifying ungodly people. Because you can't justify righteously an ungodly Sinner. What had to happen was that somebody had to pay for that sin. And you know, the only person left to pay for that sin since the whole world was evil, it was God. God had to pay for the penalty for sin. And up until this time, he had not paid the penalty for sin. The time where, you know, right before Paul wrote this. The time before Christ died upon the cross. The price had not been paid. That's why when, uh, when God redeemed Israel out of their slavery and bondage, which is the type of what was to come, they put the blood over the door, right? And the death angel passed by, but he killed the firstborn of the Egyptians. They call it a Passover because God didn't deal with the sins of Israel. He did slay the Egyptians for their sins, but he didn't do the same for Israel, and they were just as bad as the Egyptians. It was a Passover. Paul says, even to the Gentiles, I think this passage mainly applies to God's people, those that he has actually justified, but even the Gentiles... Paul says to the Gentiles, the time for repentance has come. The time for faith in Christ has come. God has overlooked your past sins, but now the judgment's coming. So even for the Gentile nations to survive, for God not to throw them into hell immediately, he had to have forbearance. But there's a difference between the forbearance of God for those that he justifies in the past, sinners, and those that 
he passes over and allows their nations and types to keep going. And that is those sins, all the <coughs> sins that people keep doing as long as they live, they just go in the cup of God. They build his wrath. It just means that more justice and wrath needs to be poured out upon mankind. So, we needed a savior. We needed redemption. We needed to be able to avoid the wrath of God. And the only one that could do it was God. So God became man. And God stepped into us, to our place. And he got what we deserved. We sang beautiful hymn today. Many beautiful hymns. It was right. I'm always amazed how the Spirit leads. Even people that hadn't talked about what hymns to put in there sometimes. But, but God himself came down and became what he was not. The Son of God, the Father, gave his Son. God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, gave the second person of the Trinity to us. And he went to the cross. And I just love it when these so-called Christians say, oh, you, you know, you Calvinists, you Protestant fundamentalists, you think that, that, that substitutionary atonement is how God did it? How can you get that? He was just giving us an example of how much he loved us. I don't think so. And I think it's the hardest thing that God ever did. I think it was a fearsome thing that God, that God did. Because Jesus was God. Right? He had a human body. But the person was God. As a matter of fact, he asked, Father, can this cup pass from me? Uh, he was, he was going to gain control of the kingdom, right? And when uh, and John and, and James wanted to sit on his right hand, he says, I don't think you can drink from the cup that's coming my way. But Jesus asked him in the garden, can this cup pass from me? And the reason for that was is all the sins of his people were going to be poured out upon him by God. He was going to be forsaken. And there's only one person who could do that because, frankly, there's only one person who had the fortitude and the ability not to give in to temptation. And that was God himself. And so, though he did not want to, in the sense of he did not want to be forsaken by God. He did not want to die. He did not want to have to be on that cross and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he did. And because he did, all your sins are forgiven. And it doesn't matter how many you commit. People don't like this about Protestant Christianity. I don't care how many you commit. 
Yesterday, what you've done is gone because it's been satisfied in Christ. What you do today will be gone, and what you do tomorrow will be gone because God exhausted his wrath. He propitiated all his righteous judgment on his son who took our flesh and hangs on the cross. I know our time is short, just think I'm going to finish this up. All preachers are supposed to have three points and a poem. I got a poem. I'm going to finish it with it. I think it summarizes almost perfectly what I said. However, I'm taking the liberty to change one line. And the name of the hymn, poem, which we sing, is I need no other argument. The line I'm going to change is, the second line, not in device or creed. I'm going to change that because I don't like it. I think I know what's, what whoever wrote it meant, but the fact of the matter is, a creed, a creed is a statement of what you believe. There's thousands of creeds, and every one of you have got a creed, but the creed of the church is the Bible. That's the authoritative creed. And from that creed, we, we, we join together. And you can't know God without those propositions, those creeds. So you can't separate Christ from his creed. That's the old trick of the liberals. Right? I believe in Jesus. I believe that Jesus died for me. But I just don't believe the words in the scripture. You, you just believe in the Bible. I had a cousin that went to seminary the same time I did at Louisville. I was in Covington, and he stopped by. He was Presbyterian minister. I was Presbyterian at different denominations. He used to come by, and uh, he, was, he, he was a big follower of Bart. He was a very kind man, wonderful man, loved him, great cousin. And he'd come by, and he used to say to me, he said, Steve, you, you're just putting God in a box. You can't be limited to that. You don't know any of that. We can't reach up to, you know. We just know that it's yes in Christ. All that other stuff, that doesn't matter. Right? His name is Steve also. I said, no, Steve, I'm not putting God in a box. That Bible puts me in a box. That's it. So I'm going to substitute for not in device or creed, no other place is safe for me. So here, here's, here's, the, here's the conclusion. I think it expresses, if I didn't get it across, this will. My faith has found a resting place. No other place is safe for me. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. For me that Jesus saves, this ends my fear and doubt. A sinful soul, I come to him. He will never cast me out. How Calvinist of him. He will never cast me out. My great physician heals the sick. The lost he came to save. For me, his precious blood he shed. For me, his life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have such a great Savior.
And Father, we do not know why you did what you did. But we praise you for it. And Lord, Lord, we have never known such love here. And we cannot wait for you to come back. Where we may join you, body and soul, ransomed, healed, restored, and forgiven. To meet with all our brothers and sisters in the great reunion that is to come. Lord, help us to persevere until we get there. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.